Welcome to Stutzcast. It is Wednesday the 27th of February, uh, 6.26 in the morning. It's an early start today. I'll explain why in a second. Uh, but today we're taking an early morning walk because, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, snow was forecast and it did snow. So not that much. We've got about, uh, I don't know, two inches, two and a half inches of snow but uh, makes for a different type of experience on the walk. So we'll see what this brings. Anyway, thank you for listening and uh, let's see how it goes. Okay, well, here we are out again, Rooney and I, on our early morning uh, walk a little bit of exercise now it's uh, it is very early it's uh, you know it's not even 6 30 yet so the sun is not up it is dark but because the snow is on the ground when i opened my eyes this morning i thought oh it must be it must be getting up time because there was this kind of uh, light glow coming you know bet- between the curtains and of course, I looked at my watch. I thought, "Oh my God, it's only 5:15." I think it was even earlier than that. But uh, couldn't get back to sleep after that. And so, you you might think that uh, I don't prepare for these podcasts. It's just a kind of rambling stream of thoughts that go through my brain. Probably you can tell that by the amount of ums and ahs and you knows that I interject into the conversation as my brain slowly grinds through what I'm trying to say. Well, you'd be right. But I have thought this through. And this is uh, the Stutzcast Law of Sleep. And it goes like this. The amount of sleep possible is inversely proportionate to the amount of time available which means that if you don't have many hours available to go to sleep by the time it's time to get up you really would like to sleep longer you would love just to have a few more minutes just lying in bed and conversely If you've got all the time in the world and you don't have to get up for anything in particular but you wake up there's no way you're getting back to sleep. That seems to be how it works with me anyway. It's extremely annoying because as you probably know by now I'm not working at the moment. I could get up at midday if I wanted but no. No. So hence the reason why we're out at 6.30 in the morning before the sun's even come up. Rooney's perfectly happy with that decision. Although I have to say, he did take a little bit of time to get off Maya's bed this morning when I opened the door and said, come on, Runes. There was definitely like a 20, 30 second delay as he slid off her bed. But uh, but he's with me now. And because it's... Uh, white everywhere his black 
body stands out easy to see where it is now which is great so uh, off we go now I listened to yesterday's uh, dreadful attempt at uh, a podcast and um, I thought I'd solved the problem of the microphone and all that interference and, and you know background noise but no 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 uh, the, it, it, there were times when I couldn't hear a, a thing so I had a word with my technical department and uh, came up with a, an alternative solution so I found a couple of safety pins that were you know hanging around in the desk that my dad gave me probably you know those safety pins have been around since his grandfather <laughs> never been used so at last I found a use for them I've pinned the microphone with two safety pins to my lapel and I'm hoping that that will stop the microphone from moving whilst I'm moving we'll see but anyway apologies if you did try and listen to yesterday's podcast it was a terrible attempt I'm getting better at this stuff but only gradually so right I'm uh, I'm on the trail again but uh, you can't hear the crunch crunch of the gravel underfoot you might be able to hear the sort of creak creak of the snow as it compacts under my boots I actually got my walking boots on this morning because I realised that this is not going to be good weather for going around in your trainers it's surprisingly fresh not cold not cold at all didn't actually well I know I did have a quick look at the uh, thermometer this morning when I first let Rooney out I think it said 30 you know it's just about freezing that's not that bad but it's uh, you know it's kind of like when you put clean linen on a bed you know and you first get into it it hasn't been used it feels very luxurious and nice of course I suppose the same sort of theory applies after you've you know been sleeping in the same linen for a couple of weeks you know you get the sense that it's not really so fresh and nice same as snow you know it's it kind of uh, there's nothing nicer than new, newly fallen snow to be walking in it but you know once it gets dirty and and you know people have walked all over it ah it's been soiled it needs to be needs to be changed and that's my thoughts on snow i do like it when it first falls i soon get bored of it it's actually i mean the snow's fallen overnight so i can't really see if there are if there are any kind of footprints or anything in the snow because it's too dark but when the sun does come up I'll be able to see what's keeping us company out here those invisible little creatures that uh, you don't see but you, there's evidence of them I'm hoping to see deer prints I'm sure I'll see uh, I'm, I'm hoping to see maybe a 
coyote print. I'm going to go up the coyote, what I call the coyote trail this morning because that's uh, where Rooney and I encountered a coyote back in the summer. That was quite an interesting encounter. Once we get up onto the trail, I'll tell you about that. But uh, at the moment, I'm walking through the back of the, uh, the, the larger of the salt marsh fields. I know that the whole area is 220.3 acres, as it says on the, on the sign, as you come into this uh, park. Must be very accurate where they measured the 0.3 of an acre. But uh, coming from a farm, our farm was about, uh, what was it, 200 acres, so it's about, about the same size as this, this, um, this whole kind of salt marsh area. Gosh, that's quite big, isn't it? But looking at the big field there, yeah, that's probably bigger than our biggest field. And our biggest field was, I think it was about seven, eight acres. So the field there's got to be about 10 acres. Does that mean anything to anybody except me and farmers? It's a, it's a measure of scale, measure of distance, or area, I should say, not distance. Now because, I suppose because the, the air is so clean, I can hear the 95 quite clearly, the I-95 in the distance. I'll get away from that soon. But yeah, there's traffic, even in these COVID times, there's traffic. Well, 24-7 on that road, never stops. But there, are, there have been times when, uh, you know, there's been almost no traffic. It's usually things like Christmas Day and New Year's Day and Thanksgiving Day. But even then, you get the odd uh, bit of traffic. But today, a good steady roar of uh, 21st century traffic, despite the COVID plague. We've all got to eat, we've all got to have our uh, well, consumables. Apparently we're consuming much less than we used to. It's probably a good thing, except if you're in business. I did hear on the radio yesterday that uh, sales of champagne have dropped by 30%. <laughs> I can't remember the, the, the number of zeros, but it was something like, you know, if there were 300 million bottles of champagne sold last year, there were only 200 million bottles of champagne sold this year. I feel so sorry for all those vintners, vineyard owners in the Champagne region of France. I'm sure they will get better sales soon. So yeah, deserted pathway. It's pretty much always deserted except for the old passerby. I'm glad they keep it, you know, up though. It's something that uh, if it was in England, the council would probably say, oh, it's not worth it, not enough people use it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very nicely kept. They, they keep, you know, about every blue moon, they send a, a team of uh, gardeners up on these paths with their strimmers and their you know, the blowers and all that sort of stuff, and they, they keep the path in pretty good order. What they don't do is send uh, plows and uh, things to clear the snow. Can't blend them, you couldn't get a plow up here. 
it was too uh, too rural, too narrow. Probably because it's too early, I don't really you know, see much wildlife. I can hear one guy just chirping away. I don't know if you can hear that. One guy's just getting up. No idea what he is. So the trees have got a layer, or just on one side. It must have been a bit of wind as the snow was falling last night. They've got a layer of white on one side, presumably the side facing the wind. But they've withheld the storm pretty well. It wasn't a big storm, it was a fairly mild one. Not, not like you can get, so no trees have been pushed over. Everything looks pretty good. Rini's a bit curious because all the smells have been sort of smothered out by the snow. Although no, he's, he's got something now, he's, he's following some kind of a scent. That's what he loves to do. So we're going to take a left and go on a different trail this morning, up what I call the Coyote Trail, which is just a different branch of, of the paths that kind of crisscross around this area. I'm going up here because we haven't been up here yet. It doesn't really lead anywhere except to the uh, omnipresent landfill site. <laughs> I try not to think about the fact that we're walking around in a giant human trash can. <laughs> I like to be a bit more poetic and romantic about this area and think about the uh, the pastoral countryside. <laughs> Knowing that, you know, probably only about three foot underfoot is uh, probably a hundred years of human garbage. Anyway, up here there's a hill and uh, Harini and I were walking up here in the summer. I, I, I haven't actually been up this path before so I was a bit, you know, a bit timid. Not timid, but a bit, walking a bit gingerly around here because I didn't really know where it was leading. And uh, it's, uh, it's a narrower path so the, uh, the grass borders kind of close you in a little bit can't see that much, can't see that far ahead. And uh, ooh, now it's getting lighter, I can see the deer tracks. Oh yeah. Anyway, we, uh, we took a left turn, I'll go up there this morning. We took a left turn, there's another little path, just kept heading uphill. So I was thinking, well, I must be able to get to a good view if I keep going up. Because I'm only about five foot seven. <laughs> and I can't really see over this, this grass. So, I wanted to get to a vantage point. So I headed up, uphill. And you get to a point, we're going to be there in a minute. You get to a point where there's a big wire fence at the top of the hill. It's quite a big area. That's, you know, danger signs keep out. You think, ooh, what is that in there? And I could hear this kind of 
noise of some kind of electrical station. And, uh, and then, you know, as I went up to the fence and peered through, I could see just acres of solar panels. And that's what's up, that's what's up there. You know, they obviously don't want people up there messing around with the equipment, so they've, they've, um, oh, two doves were just uh, taking a drink of water out of the one puddle that's around. <laughs> Poor things really just scared them off. Anyway, so yeah, there's this solar farm, if that's what it's called, um, generating electricity, which I think is good. It's enterprising, it's renewable. I'm all for that. Oh, and he's just taken off. He's charging around the corner. I've lost sight of him now. What's he after? I'm guessing it's a deer. I'm hoping it's not that coyote. So speaking of which, yeah, I was uh, nosing around, having a look at this uh, solar uh, farm, and uh, just, just walking around. The, you know, it wasn't going into. It couldn't, you couldn't go into the area because of the fence. But just, just nosing around. And then I saw, and Rooney was by my side at the time, probably about, not, not more than 50 foot away from me, was this, well initially I thought it was a dog, brown dog. And I thought, oh God, he looks in uh, pretty bad shape. And then I looked again, I thought, no, no, that's not a dog. That's a coyote. And uh, it, was, it was about the same size as Rooney. You know, I'm guessing, probably wasn't as heavy as him. If he's about 60 pounds, it was probably about 40 pounds or something, but it looked, it looked pretty mean. And uh, its hair was kind of matted and, and stuck down and it didn't look like it was in good shape at all. I thought, oh, this thing looks like it might be rabid. Anyway, it was looking right at us. Rooney was looking right at it. <laughs> and his, his natural instinct with other dogs is to run up to them, wag his tail and play. And I thought, oh God, don't do that, Rooney, whatever you do. <laughs> anyway, something in him must have, must have withheld the instinct or suppressed the instinct to just charge. And he didn't, he just looked at it and it looked at us. And I thought, oh, it was like a, you know, a gunfight in a Western. Who's going to make the first move? And suddenly it just turned and it obviously, you know, knew that area because it, it, it went underneath the fence where uh, I think it must have dug a kind of like a shallow trough underneath the fence where it could squeeze its body through. And then it went into the solar panel farm and uh, we didn't see it again. And pretty wise if you think about it, it's made its home in an area where man doesn't really go unless you happen to be a technician or somebody who's got you know something to do with the solar farm you wouldn't go up there so they're pretty wise creatures i don't think it was rabid because i've seen rabid you know raccoons and things and they wander around like they're drunk this thing was not it was probably just you know living off the land hungry Looking for food, rabbits, hares, squirrels, whatever it can get its teeth into. So I'm just coming right up to the exact spot where we saw it 
there are no, there are no uh, footprints in the ground here except for Rooney's great big giant footprints. <laughs> he does have big feet now. Oh, no, no, there are some footprints here. No, that looks like, that's a pad. It's not a hoof. It's a pad of some sort. It's much smaller than Rooney's. Raccoon or fox. Could be a small fox. Probably a raccoon, I'd say. I feel like Davy Crockett. <laughs> ah, now here's the fence. No trespassing. Please contact Green Skies Renewable Energy for after hours emergencies. What, what would be an after hours emergency? Here's that trough, the very trough in fact, that the coyote went through. I'm really sniffing it, he must have been through there, but there's no. It's a paw print, so he kind of been through since the snow fell. Yeah, it's getting light now, so I can see much better. Okay, these soda panels will not be functioning right now because they're all coated with snow. Now that's, a, now that's a technical glitch, isn't it? They need windscreen wipers or something to clear the snow off the panels. Or, well, they must have thought of that. There must be some way they've overcome the issue of snow. Or maybe they just don't bother. I can still hear the buzz. They can't be producing any energy right now, though. I mean, there's no snow at all. No, there's no sun at all. Right. So I've got a little bit of a vantage point up here. You know, we are high-ish for, for Connecticut, anyway. Oh, wait a minute, what's that over there? I don't know, I thought it was an animal, but it's not. Um, yeah, I can see, well, I can see the sea, actually. See, right out to sea, I can see a, there's a ship out on the sea. I can see a lighthouse flashing red. Can't be a lighthouse flashing red. It must be just a high tower or something. And uh, I can see the roofs of those homes that we've passed a few times down by the waterfront, all holding their, their load of snow. I'm just curious as to, because Rooney's running around so much that all I can see are his paw prints. I don't know if there's anything else, but his are pretty distinctive, isn't it? No, there's nothing else up here. Friends, we're going to walk back down again. And he's sniffing at this fence. There's something that's got his attention. And he's a... He's kind of... Oh, no, there was something. I think it was a rabbit. Just went tearing across the, on the other side of the fence, tearing across the uh, solar panel field. Uh, must be why the coyote lives up there. There's got to be some food supply. So, that is the coyote trail. No coyote today, I'm afraid. So we'll walk back down and rejoin the path and see what else we can find. Okay, well, we're now off the uh, 
Coyote Trail. We join the main trail again and uh, go back down the hill. So I was thinking, runes we're going to go right here. I was thinking about all the books I've read during the uh, COVID-19 kind of restricted period. I read a few, quite a few books. And uh, I started off actually, um, I suppose rather appropriately reading The Year of the Plague by Daniel Defoe. Yeah, Daniel Defoe, yeah, the same guy that wrote Robinson Crusoe. That's what he's more famous for. But he also, he was alive in, in 1655. Well, I think he was only very young. I think he was probably, you know, like a child in 1655. But, you know, it was a big issue. And they, uh, you know, no doubt talked about the plague for the whole of, throughout the whole of his lifetime. And he was probably very familiar. It's a bit like, you know, people who were children during World War II. It's not like they, they were in it, but they certainly know about it. And uh, he wrote this book called The Journal of the Year of the Plague, 1655. And uh, it, it's a fascinating book to read now because it's a good comparison of how people responded to pandemics. You know, in, in the 1600s and uh, compare it to how people respond today and uh, the sorts of things that you know immediately strike you are um, but what it, it, it kicks off with uh, you know measuring how many people have got it they're pretty good at measuring it you know it came over they thought from Holland they called it the Dutch plague and uh, you know, a few people died of it. They were used to plagues. You know, they'd had the Black Death sometime before that. But um, it, it began to get worse. And uh, so, what they immediately started to do was uh, instill the quarantine system, which meant if you if you had the plague or you had symptoms of the plague, you had to go into quarantine which uh, meant you had to stay in your house. They would actually lock you in and they would put a guard outside your house and put a big red cross on your front door. Everybody knew somebody in there has got the plague, no one would come anywhere near you. Um, but of course, that was inconvenient and unpleasant. And if, you know, one person had the plague in the house, everybody got quarantined. So people didn't want it. So they didn't want to admit that there was anybody who had the plague in the house so of course you know that's how it spread and I, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of that going on at the moment here you know people don't want to admit they've got uh, Covid they've got to go to work or got to continue with their lives so they just don't tell anybody and it spread so of course then it got worse because if somebody in the household had the plague <coughs> what they would do is and, and I was surprised about this, that a lot of people in London had homes in the countryside. So what, what they would do is they would, they, they did, you know, in huge numbers, evacuate London and go to their London, uh, go to their country homes. 
but they wouldn't tell the authorities that somebody in the house had plague until they'd already gone <laughs> and then they'd tell a maid yeah go go and tell the uh, you know the, the, the people in charge that uh, old uh, you know Doreen's got the plague you know the cook's daughter or something and uh, so they were all safely up but of course what they did then was they spread the plague into the countryside and it spread and it spread and it spread throughout the whole of England. <laughs> anyway, the, um, the, other, the other points of comparison were you weren't allowed to come within, well they had these yard sticks, these big red sticks that people would carry around and uh, basically you couldn't come within you know the yardstick range of any, any other person because they wanted to make sure that you know the infection didn't pass from one person to another which is pretty much like our six feet apart rule at the moment and uh, they didn't know what was causing it just like it took a while to find out what was causing it with Covid of course they didn't have vaccinations or anything like that but uh, what, they, what he does sort of note is that uh, people's symptoms eased. So initially people would die very quickly. A very painful death too, but he describes that as unpleasant. But um, people would die quickly to begin with. And then they noticed that people who, who did catch the plague started to survive. And then they had milder symptoms and then so this is obviously the body's immune, or, or, or the herd immune system sort of building up to the point where, you know, the population became p pretty immune. And it took a year, which is surprisingly fast, isn't it, when you think how quickly the human system responds to an illness like that. But it took a year, and, uh, and, then, the, and then the plague kind of subsided and everything went back to normal again but well, it didn't go back to normal in London because they had the great fire of London in 1666 it was the year after which some people thought was uh, a way of you know exterminating the remainder of the plague and uh, you know cleansing London but uh, he, he didn't think that at all he thought there's nothing to do with that he said, in fact, the areas that burnt in, in London were areas that were relatively plague-free. Um, it did cause an, an enormous renewal, but I'm drifting off the point, <laughs> as usual. The, um, so that was one book I read, that was probably one of the first books I read. Uh, it was interesting, recommended reading if you feel like a, a dip into the historic comparison. But, um, you know, I've read a number of other books since then. And uh, the one that really sticks in my mind as being probably the best book I've, I've read during the plague is, uh, I'm calling it the plague now, um, during, during this, this pandemic, this COVID pandemic, is um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's got nothing to do with uh, COVID, um, but it's a, it's, it really is a tremendous novel. It's written by a lady called Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, and she was from Connecticut. Uh, 
I think she was from Litchfield, but she lived she lived in the you know, 1800s. I think she was born in about 1810, died about 1890 or something. Anyway, around about 1830, she wrote this book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and she was an abolitionist. So she she was uh, against slavery, very much so, wanted it abolished. And so what she decided to do was um, tell a story about you know the life of a slave, Uncle Tom, and his family and his owners and how he gets sold and he goes down south to work on a plantation and the treatment of him by a very cruel plantation owner <coughs> and uh, his daughter and how his his daughter also gets sold and her son gets sold and uh, the, the mother and and, and child gets separated. I mean, it's, it's a really tragic tale. And, uh, but it's based on, she, she maintains it was based on truth. This actually happened. And this, this happened in, you know, in the 1830, not that long ago. And uh, I think if you really want to understand the whole Black Lives Matter and uh, the issue that, that fundamentally is underneath all this, it's, it's, it's a great way of getting to grips with what are we really talking about? Because you know, I still come across these intolerant attitudes of people that say, oh, move on, you know, that was then, this is now. No, no, it's, it's not time to move on. It's time to understand what the heck happened and how, you know, white supremacist you know, systems are so morally and fundamentally corrupt and, and how that, that undercurrent of white supremacist, you know, feeling of entitlement, it's, it's still around. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> it's no good if you're, if you're a white supremacist, I would not suggest reading it, but if, you're, if you want just a better view of where all, uh, everything's come from. Read that. It's, uh, it's a really good, really good book. If nothing else, it's a hell of a good story. And it's well, well described. She does the dialogue between the slaves in the vernacular. So you've got to get used to that. She spells it the way they speak it, which is fun, actually. You know, it's really, you, you get a feel for it. You're really like in, in the kitchen with them when they're talking to each other. And uh, my God, she, she really does go through the emotions and, and, and exceptionally well. So that's Harriet Beecher Stowe, woman, woman ahead of her time. She made herself fiercely unpopular in the South. They hated her, absolutely hated her. But uh, she did a good job. Slavery was abolished. Um, in, in her lifetime, certainly in the UK, obviously in the UK, you know, sort of, <clears throat> well before that. Not that they weren't involved in the slave trade, but they didn't have it in the UK. Or Britain. So, uh, that was another book that I read that I thought was pretty good. 
But then when we were over in the UK, we were staying with some friends of ours called the Scots, Katie and David Scott. They were so hospitable that we had to quarantine when we landed in the UK. And uh, so we had to spend two weeks in their house. And because their house is big enough, they have like a, you know, got a very nice living basement, living area. So we stayed in that and we kept our distance. We observed the rules very diligently. And, uh, you know, we had to do that before we took Maya to college. But, um, not but, but the point I'm <clears throat> trying to make is what did I read? Well, Katie, who's quite spiritual, she's written a book herself actually called Distant Bells. Oh, she may have changed the title. It's a good book, very spiritual. <clears throat> but Katie uh, recommended a book by a guy called Mitch Al. Alblom, if that's how you pronounce it. And it's called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And it's an extraordinary tale. Set, I think, in about the 1930s of this um, fairground mechanic who dies in a fairground accident. And he's elderly, but he, anyway, he gets crushed and, and by one of the rides. <clears throat> and then, of course, it's, it's his journey uh, in the afterlife to, to heaven and the people that he meets. Worth a read. I mean, of course, maybe believes in that. I mean, you can't believe in that kind of stuff, but it's nice to ponder what might be the case. And uh, what else have I read? Oh, of course, I've read Sapiens, or Sapiens, as us Brits would call it. That is a hard read. Oop. Ah, oh, no, no, it's just, a, it's just a wood pigeon. I thought it was our Eastern Kingbird, but it's not. Um, Sapiens, can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it. He's got three names. Not sure which one he actually uses as his main name, but that is a tough read, but it's a good read. It's a long book, it'll take you quite a while to get through it. But if you want to get a kind of handle on, you know, <clears throat> human history going back hundreds of thousands of years, right up to modern day, Sapiens is your book. It's, uh, it, 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 it's, you, you need time. You can't read something else at the same time as you're reading Sapiens because, you know, it, it, you need to relax your brain after you know, a couple of chapters of that. But, uh, and it's very philosophical and also goes through the systems of human government and, you know, goes through all that kind of stuff. And it's very factual. It's not theoretical, it's factual. And uh, what else have I read? I think I mentioned it in one of my previous podcasts, Nan Shepard's book, The Living Mountain. That's, uh, that's a classic. It's only, it's really short, so if you don't, you know, want to be stuck with a book for too long, it's only about 80, 90 pages long. But they're good pages. She describes in vivid detail life in the can goes, ah, there's a little, little chickadee, you know, one of my favorite types of birds. Those guys are so cute. Black head, white face, 
yellow chest. About the same size as a, a robin. They're so cute. They almost will eat off your hand if you stay there long enough. Um, yeah, so Nan Shepherd's Living Mountain. I would recommend if you uh, if you like the you know the outdoors. And she describes every aspect of, of the Cairngorms, you know, the mountain itself, the wildlife. Yeah, it's probably what inspired me to do these uh, podcasts outdoors. She she died. What well, I think about the 1970s. She wrote it, I think, in about the 1940s. Um, and I, I like that period of time. People were modern, but not greedy. And uh, she wrote the book. She wasn't really a novelist. I think she did write more than that, but <clears throat> she wrote it, but she put it away in a drawer for 30 years because she didn't think anybody would want to read it. And uh, it wasn't published until the 70s. And uh, it became a classic. It's so well written and, and, you know, you feel like a better person once you've read a book like that. And uh, of course, the Scottish, you know, have deified her. <laughs> they they put her face on the Scottish currency. I think she's on a Scottish five-pound note or something. <laughs> well deserved, though. She's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Nan Shepherd, The Living Mountain. If you can get a copy of that, well worth it. So there's a little uh, bibliograph for you. I'm not sure how we got into that. But uh, it is worth, worth dipping. I'm, I'm sure we're all reading. Well, not some people don't like to read, but those that do, I'm sure we're all reading a bit more than we, we normally would because we've got a bit more time. And uh, it, I would recommend it. It's time well spent. Now, I'm coming to the end of the, uh, the levee. And uh <laughs> Yeah, it's a different scene now. We're obviously the first people to have walked here, Rooney and I, so there's uh, only our prints on the snow. Everything looks like it's well there's not a lot of snow but there's enough snow to sort of coat the uh, the houses and the path here there's not enough snow to cover the salt marshes <clears throat> they're still brown but the houses look they look like they've got like an eider down wrapped over them so we're at the end of the levee. Let's just say hello to our geese friends. Now that's interesting. They can't be goslings. Maybe they're some of those buffleheads. <clears throat> There's a, like a little flotilla of... Um, let me get a bit closer. No, those are buffleheads. More, than, more of them than I would have thought, considering they're transitory and they're only passing through. It must be sort of stopping off for a, you know, a week or two. 
yeah there's buffalo heads mixed in with a flock of geese interesting well, they're just uh, paddling around the buffalo heads actually go completely underwater you know, sort of presumably picking food off the uh, you know off the bottom of the um, the creek they're moving around quite fast the geese are not moving around much they're just kind of fairly sedate <sighs> oh gosh what's that over there right on the other side of the creek oh, it's a human being that's a strange piece of wildlife a human being with two dogs he's just standing there probably looking at me thinking oh look human being <laughs> move on well it's 7 15 now i've probably got about another 25 minutes of the walk if i go directly home from here which uh which is plenty i was thinking just looking at rooney's footprints in the snow paw prints in the snow <clears throat> i'm thinking that for every step that i take he probably takes about 10. so if this is a three mile walk for me or a three and a half mile walk for me he, he's doing like 30. because i was thinking looking at him this morning as i put his harness on <clears throat> he He's, he's bulked out a bit and uh, I was thinking am I feeding him too much is he getting overweight or is that muscle he's putting on he does look chunky but uh, I'm hoping it's muscle can't really tell with a dog I suppose you can but uh, yeah he's, he's getting plenty of exercise in these days good for him me too it's good for me as well yeah this is not all selfless you know dog loving dog walking it's good for me good for both of us we have a symbiotic relationship Rooney and I what's good for him is good for me come on old boy anyway I was thinking I'll uh, I'll sign off and, uh, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll meet again but thank you for listening my idle ramblings I'll try and think of something a bit more interesting to say next time but thank you very much and goodbye from the Stutzcast <laughs> <laughs>